and welcome to episode seven of Diversity University. I know it's been a long time, but it's so nice to be back on here once again. So this co- this podcast comprises teenagers from different ethnic backgrounds talking about topics important to us. I'm Faith Kumi, and I'm Ghanaian American. And I'm Danielle, and I'm Chinese American. To some of our listeners, you may notice that we are short of two co-hosts, Abu and Emmanuel. And that is because Danielle and I are doing a, a book report project assigned to us for our literature class. Hopefully in the near future, all four of us can have another discussion. In this episode, we have our very special guest, Teresa Duarte, who happens to be our Ivy Lit Lang teacher. Would you like to give a little introduction? I'm really not prepared for this, but okay, here I go. My name is Teresa Duarte, and I am the IB Language and Literature course, not Literature and Language course, as Faith erroneously introduced herself as. I am of Mexican-American descent. Um, Is that important? That's great. Okay, good. All right. Thank you. And I'm here uh, by force, of course, because I wanted to be part of a podcast with all four members present, but I am relegated to having half the crew. So I'll have to go with that. Well, you're getting the best half. So that's all that matters. Okay. <laughs> in this episode, we'll discuss the books we chose, what, what it means to us, and overall just generate some discussions from there. But first, let's start off with our iconic lightning round questions. Woo! So what was your favorite book to read or to teach in IB literature and language? Oh, my God. Did you just say literature and language? It's language and literature. <laughs> yes, Danielle, you've been in there for two years. Oh. I'll fix it. I'll okay. fix it. I think if you know me um, and you've been with me, as both of you have in year two, you guess, Daniel, which one do you think was my favorite? Obviously, The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, my God. Yes. 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 The Handmaid's Tale is my favorite book to teach in this course. And it's one of my favorite reads outside of this course. I think it's so important and so relevant. And I think Margaret Atwood, um, that woman has her hand and her heart on the pulse of the world, really. I really do. She's a visionary. My favorite book to read was Boxes and Saints. I just really found that book so interesting for some reason. I really liked it. What was the last book you read? A Children's Bible. And it's actually, don't laugh. I heard some laughing in this audience over here. It's not actually a Bible. So yes, I read it. Okay, so it's um, a children's Bible by Lydia Millet, and she actually um, won some awards for it, and I can't remember what they are at the top of my head, but it is, it's being touted as a modern-day uh, Lord of the Flies, and it was very, very interesting. It was nothing like, it was like Lord of the Flies, and then nothing like Lord of the Flies at the same time. Very contemporary, uh, very teenage angst. Um it, it was a good read. And, and I mean, if you're interested, you should read it, especially because so many people, freshmen hate Lord of the Flies, right? For me, the last book I read was this manga called Girls und Panzer, which means girls in tanks. It's pretty, it was pretty entertaining. Um, but the non like manga book I read was Chronicle of a Death Foretold. All right, next question is, what book do you anticipate reading? I have two books. I bought four books over spring break um, that I wanted to read and I've read two of them so far. And so I'm reading one right now and I'm not sure what I'm going to read next after this. So I don't really have an anticipation of reading a book. I'm reading, currently reading um, a book called Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. 
And um, he wrote one of my favorite books, uh, Buried Giant, which, which I love. The book I anticipate in reading, it's actually one that my mentor recently just recommended called, it's right here, Time to Get Tough by Michael J. Jones. And he was actually the CEO of the Great American Cookies. It kind of just talks about like his life and like things that he had to go through to reach his level of success. So I can't read self-help books. I don't know why. I just, that's a genre that is just, I cannot connect with. And if you could tell that great American cookie guy something, tell him his cookies are way too soft and they charge way too much at the mall. If he could do something with that recipe and cook them a little longer, I might consider eating one of their cookies, but they're way too soft and chewy. And I don't think they're so great, great American cookie. I mean, they're just, he should retitle it. Just okay. American cookie. Yeah. If you don't trust his cookie recipe, why do you trust his advice or his words? No. Right. So do you know the Mariko Aoki phenomenon? I have no idea what you're talking about. So it's like a Japanese like idea about how like going into a bookstore makes you want to poop. <laughs> makes you want to what? Like you have the urge to, like, you have the urge to poop in a bookstore. Mariko Aoki phenomenon. So are you saying, Danielle, that there's a phenomenon supposedly where if you, you walk into a bookstore, you want to poop? Yeah. Oh, well, you have the urge to poop. What? Well, you, you, you've, never, you've never like experienced that before? No. I mean, I can't say that walking into a bookstore gives me the urge to poop. I mean, it would have to happen every time. And I can testify that that definitely does not happen every time to me. It doesn't have, yeah, it doesn't happen every time for me too, but like I've definitely experienced it. So yeah, that that's the, that I think that's all the lightning round questions. <laughs> that last question was terrible. I thought it was interesting, the Mariko. I, I feel like that's one. a hit or miss. And also, I want okay. to go on record at some point in the podcast to let the whole audience know that Faith put on lip gloss for the audio recording of the podcast. So now we will be transitioning to the book review part, and I will go first. So my book, When Breath Becomes There, by Paul Kalanithi. Paul Kalanithi is the author and main character of his memoir slash autobiography. This memoir is a very sentimental and personal opus that centers around his life, specifically his medical career, his fight with terminal illness, and his family. Kalanithi wrote this memoir uh, since his early diagnosis and then to his deathbed because he wanted to share his story. He wanted to mimic the great writers he often alluded to, such as Twain, Austin Dickens, for his literary pursuit. Since he graduated with a degree in literature from Stanford, he himself was big on reading and creative writing. Uh, He kind of took this opportunity to share his own thoughts and experiences that he learned grappling with life and sickness. Kalanithi was very motivated to write his manuscript. Before he passed, he would work on it in his free time while he was bedridden until he was too weak to write. Paul kind of saw publishing this book as one last great thing he would leave the earth with. Throughout the novel, you notice how diligent and passionate Paul is. This memoir was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and the 2016 Goodreads Choice winner. This novel takes place through the life of Paul Kalanithi, so spanning his birth to death, which is from 1977 to 2015. There isn't really a certain historical context that the reader needs to understand. There is a lot of medical context, though. Uh, It's pretty much all explained but he uses medical terms uh, specifically during his time in medical school residency and his time as a researcher. 
So the overall summary is that Paul Kalanithi grew up in Arizona, living the typical Indian American life. He worked hard in high school to land an acceptance to Stanford University. He graduated with a degree in English literature and human biology. He then studied at the University of Cambridge and attended Yale Medical School. During his time, he became really interested in neurology, which is a difficult field, but very vital. And this field really intimidated a lot of aspiring physicians. So, um, but neurosurgery is where he saw his calling. A little into his time in residency, he fell ill to lung cancer. While it was treatable with medication, it advanced where he required chemotherapy. After that, he began he became too weak and succumbed to his illness. During his later stages in life, him and his wife did IVF treatment so they could have a daughter. Uh, the message Kalanithi wanted to push was very clear, and I think a big contribution to that was that he was a precise, detailed person. And because of his limited time writing this memoir, it was concise. The structure was chronological order where an event would occur and he would often reflect on it. And there are two main parts in this memoir. Um, the first part being Paul pre-diagnosis, where he focused on his exposition and he spoke a lot about his patients. And then the second part is after his diagnosis. He was very Kogan, but he also used flowery and metaphorical language. He would depict performing surgery and opening one's skin as opening a curtain. He would analogize how fighting the disease is like running a marathon. And his lack of remaining time uh, left was reflected in his writing towards the end of the memoir. It did feel rushed, and the epilogue was written by his wife, but because but it was really interesting to see how his writing progressed from in the beginning where it seemed very nostalgic and like he was reflecting on a time that happened before towards the end where he was too weak to write. It definitely felt like he didn't have time left to share the rest of his story or more of his story rather. Um, Considering the themes of death, morality, and science, he depicted his message well in terms of how these topics were explicitly related to his life. I think the deeper message was to expose how anyone can fall ill to anything um, and since we see doctors as people who are the epitome of health, we don't expect them to die of terminal illness. So he showed his vulnerability to expose how morality and death can affect anyone. And I think the most important points I took away from the memoir was how precious he saw the act of living was. He said, even if I'm dying, until I actually die, I'm still living. He exemplified the optimism of coping with a mater- with a terminal illness. He talked about living in the moment a lot, and I think this is a mindset given because he's a doctor and he understands the whole gamut of his health, which in turn gives him the privilege to be more content or prepared for his future. Another quote from the memoir is, death comes for all of us. For us, for our patients, it is our fate as living, breathing, and metabolizing organisms. Most lives are lived with passivity towards death. It's something that happens to you and those around you, but Jeff and I train for years to actively engage with death to grapple with it like Jacob with the angel and in doing so to confront the meaning of life we have assumed an onerous yoke that of mortal responsibility our patients lives and identities may be in our hands yet death always wins even if you are perfect the world isn't the secret is to show that the de- deck is stacked that you will lose that your hands or judgment will slip and yet still struggle to win for your patients you can't ever reach perfection but you can believe in an asymptote toward which you are ceaselessly sh- striving 
Kalanithi, for his profession, treated patients. He discussed how, as physicians, there are multiple routes in treatment, or in neurosurgery, there are risks involved where sometimes your well-being has to be sacrificed for you to survive. I think Kalanithi highlighted some of his patient experiences to preface his own time as he would once be a patient. As a physician, Kalanithi is always fighting death, and he is always striving to help others, but death is unfortunately inevitable. Um, many people rave about this memoir. It has over 450,000 reviews with a 4.36 rating on Goodreads. Many reviews talk about how emotional and tear-jerking the book is. And while I agree it's a very sad book, I think there's a certain maturity uh, that is required to understand the gravity of his circumstance and situation. And I know illness is a serious issue, but I believe the saddest part of this book is that he left his eight-month daughter behind after he passed. Since I don't have children, his words meant for his daughter didn't, didn't hit me as hard as some other people, but it was a very beautiful last message. As an outsider who only experiences, experiences the occasional common cold or the occasional health gripe, every, everything now and then, this memoir was beautiful to read because I was reminded of how precious health is and how precious relationships are to you, especially surrounding your well-being and your mental health. Since this is a memoir and this is the life story and life work of someone who put their dying breath on into this, I don't see how I could have any input to change anything about the text. Obviously, if it weren't up to, you know, the cycle of life, it would have been nice to have a happy ending, but it's reiterated throughout the book that death is inevitable, but Kalanithi spent his last months, last years, last breath with the people he loved, and doing what he was passionate about. So next is my book review, and the book that I read was They Both Die at the End. I argue that it's really cool to read if you want to have another perspective on the importance of church and relationships. This book is written by Adam Silvera, and he's actually renowned for writing young adult books and LGBTQ-related books, and he is a New Times bestseller, and he also had the Goodreads Choice Awards for Best Young Adult Fiction. And I decided to read the book. It, I was a part of like a group in my class that was picking out books. And my group helped me decide on this book just because it's been really popular on TikTok. And this project just gave me the opportunity to just find a book I probably would not pick out normally. So the context of the story is it's basically about what happens when people are told by a phone call that they only have 24 hours to live. And some of the constant themes that are brought up is mortality, friendship, love, and consequences. There isn't really a historical context that you would need to know to read the story, but there are constant references, references to older songs like one Song Glory by Rent, which came out in 1996, American Pie Part 1 by Don McLean, which came out in 1971, and Your Song by Elton John, which came out in 1970. So those are like older songs, but not necessarily a historical reference. I would say that this story is more contemporary, and many things can relate to like our times right now. So the motivation of writing this book was that Adam's Adam mainly, a lot of times he writes about mortality, and it wraps around the fact that mortality is one of his biggest fears. And his earliest experience of death was when he found out that his uncle died in the plane crash on 9-11. Because of that, as a result, 
planes became one of the things that he tried to avoid for almost 10 years. We can even see like in the book, like they both died at the end. Fear is one of the main motif in the story. And I think that that part relates to Adam. And that's why it was often brought up a lot. And they both died at the end. So the summary of the book, um, it's about two boys, Rufus and Mateo. And they're both from New York City. They both get a call from Deathcast, and they are told that they only have one day to live. So Deathcast is essentially a mysterious company that knows when everyone is going to die. It only tells you that it is your last day, but it doesn't mention how you're going to die or what time. You can literally get that phone call and die right at that minute. So people who are called from Deathcast about their last day are called Deckers. With Deckers, they have various experiences that are offered just to them for their last day. Like they have virtual realities where you could travel around the world and they have many discounts. Like you can get a free meal at restaurants. Um, what experience offered or more or less more like a technology offered is actually an app called Last Friend. And it's not only exclusive to Deckers, actually anyone can have this app, but it's just an app where people can have one friend or make a friend on their last day. Rufus and Mateo ended up getting that app. They actually ended up befriending each other through the Last Friend app and throughout the whole story. It shows their journey through the story. And even though the title is They Both Die at the End, uh, spoiler alert, they actually do end up dying at the end. So the whole story basically tells the journey of them on their last day. The story ha is, on, is in chronological order. It actually goes by time in the day. So it starts off at 12.22 when, Mike, when Mateo hears a call from Deathcast. The book is bro broken up into four parts and the last part is the end. I believe that the message of the book was clear, is very easy to understand, I think that the chapters were interesting because it gives an additional perspective and the psychological implications about how people react when they know that they're going to die. And the deeper message was achieved. Yes, we all know that the characters are going to die at the end, hence the book being called They Both Dead at the End. But the main focus was about treating their day like it was a lifetime, overcoming fears. I think that the deeper message is you know, living life without regret because you might regret not doing things when it's too late. Some of the most important um, points uh, with examples was there's this one part where Mateo tells Rufus, if we had our entire lives ahead of us, I bet you get tired of me telling you how much I love you because I'm positive that the path, that's the path we're heading on. But before, but because we're about to die, I want to say it many times, I want, I love, I love, I love you. And I think this is an important part because it actually shows their relationship. Although they only met each other for one day, they're actually able to like literally love each other. And I think that shows, you know, how like building connections and how that's the main point of the um, book. Another important point was because, you know, just connections in general. Mateo misses the connection that he has with his mom, where his mom actually died when he was born. And another important point of the book is colors and art. Rufus found out about the Last Friend app because of seeing some art that was decorated um, with like a Last Friend advertisement. And also, he, Rufus uses Instagram a lot. 
And Instagram was an important point of the story because Rufus documents his life in this one day. And it's always in like black and white. But Mateo actually encouraged him to take some pictures and have them in color. Other people rated this story very high. And I would honestly rate the story high. I would say that I did cry a little bit, but I don't know. I don't necessarily have the same reaction as some people. Like, some people were just bawling their eyes out, and it did sh shed a little tear, but it was an emotional book, but I don't know if it was as emotional as people describe it. I don't know, but I do agree with the rating. I would definitely rate it high as well. Honestly, my personal experience or relation to the text is that it made me have like sort of some sort of existential crisis <laughs> I would say and it really made me just step back and evaluate how I'm living life maybe not for like a super long amount of time but just a little bit like after I read this book I was like wow I really should take advantage of like every single second um what I would change about the book there was a character named Peck and he was brought up in the beginning of the book and I think that in the beginning, his role was kind of like, yeah, I understand why he's brought in. But then he was also brought up like towards the end of the story. And I just thought that him being brought up really dragged the story on. And I wish that would change personally. And I also would like to know more about how Deathcast works. I think that that would be really interesting to at least explain how they know that it's going to be someone's t last day to live. And I also think that the bond Rufus and Mateo got, it was really drastic. Like, it turned from, like, a friendship to love. I definitely do think that the relationship was authentic, but it's just hard for me to believe that people can generally, like, fall in love in love in the span of knowing someone for not that long. I definitely would recommend this book to people to read. All right. Uh, so the first question is uh, for do you think your book should be made into a movie or is there any piece of media that resembles it? For me, I definitely think that the book, at least I, w I would love a sequel to this book. I think that it would be an interesting how do you sequel. They both die at the end. If they're dead, Faith, if they're dead, how do you sequel that? <laughs> because there's so many, like, I think I'll explain this more, but like, there's so many plot holes and I'm just like, and they have, okay, so the book is structured where there's different, like, characters per, like, chapter. And sometimes they bring up characters, and they're, like, briefly mentioned. And I'm like, well, let's go back. Like, can you please expand on maybe this character? So maybe if there's a sequel, it'll bring, like, talk about another character and go into depth about certain elements that the author just never mentioned. So I would love a sequel. Um, a movie would be great, but... It's kind of what they do with TV shows when a big TV show ends. They'll do a spin-off TV show with some of the side characters, right? And they have a different arc to it. And so who would you cast in your um, TV show or movie? If I were to have like a film adaptation, I would cast um, Tyler Posey. He's like a young um, Latino boy. And then I would also cast uh, Laz Alonzo, but the younger version of him. Because Tyler Posey, I think he's like 17 or so. And Laz Alonso, he's like 47, but like I would cast a younger version of him to play Rufus. And then um, the other person, Tyler Posey, to do Mateo. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you could get a younger version of him. So when you do the casting, how would you request that? I need you to be younger. 
can you go back in time or should you maybe pick a different actor because <laughs> that's not possible faith you realize that right I realize but I'm just saying hypothetically speaking okay I, all right all right yeah I get it, I, get it. <laughs> I thought you were trying to pull off something remarkable yeah I would just like put him let him time travel for the role Danielle would you want yours to be a, a movie I mean it's too late for it to be like um a documentary uh because that's what I thought would like fit it best like it could be a movie but I think like because the memoir he wrote it in his like dying days pretty concise and it's not the like most detailed so to like write like a script for a movie uh so I don't think it would be the best to adapt into a movie there's a lot of like medical shows like Grey's Anatomy and stuff like that and I've like watched like some seasons and I think it's Grey's Anatomy is obviously not as like genuine and real as his memoir but I think it also like has some parallels with, like doctors falling ill or like doctors learning from their patients. Danielle, I do need to tell you or warn you that you know you're going to lose some viewers when you just trash talk Grey's Anatomy. I, I do not got 10 people in this room right now that want to walk out because you said that. I did not trash talk Grey's Anatomy. That sounded like trash to me. Like it's not not really real or not based on I mean, come on. I, I put in six years of my life to that show. Are you telling me it's not real? Oh, okay. Yeah, what are you trying to say, Daniel? Yeah, Miss Dorothy, don't call Shonda. Like, I, I can't get sued. I think you need to have a disclaimer in your podcast about your trash-talking Grey's Anatomy that was purely for effect, that you don't actually believe yeah. in. It was for effect. It was for effect, guys. Kind of like for effect, like Faith putting on lip gloss and sunglasses at the beginning of this podcast, even though it's only an audio recording, she felt the need to put lip gloss on and sunglasses. <laughs> of course. Got to do it in style. But Mr. Orte, based off like our little summary, do you think that it would be a cool movie? I don't, you know, I don't know. When Breath Becomes Air, it sounds like, because I haven't read it, but I've read about it, you know, since it came out and it was really, really hyped up, you know, because it was so emotionally appealing. Feels like a Hallmark movie to me, right? The Hallmark channel. Yeah. Um, that's what it feels like to me if it's not a documentary. And I still think it could be a documentary if, if a filmmaker wanted to do that, but they would do it through interviews with important people about periods in their life. And I'm sure there's videos and, and things like that that would accompany that. So you see lots of documentaries done like that after like a murder of a person. And the person's still central to it, but they use other things to tell the story, right? So I think it still could be. And if I had to choose the two, which one I would want to watch about that topic, I think it would be that documentary rather than the Hallmark movie version of it. And then um, your book, Faith, sounds like a very teen book to me, like a young adult book. And I'm I'm not insulting you by any means. What I'm saying is it just seems very, mar- it seems like it's marketed to that young adult audience. And so can I see it as a movie? Definitely. I can, I can definitely see it as a movie. With Facebook, obviously they, like the reader knows they both die at the end. And with mine, because it's a memoir and like- they, Just like I said, Faith, Danielle's saying the same thing, obviously. So with mine, it's like written in like this synopsis, it's written in the prologue that he's gonna pass away. So like, we obviously know the ending and, it ta- and both of these books talk about death because like the characters are, the real life person like knows that their impending future. So my book talks a lot about 
mortality, health, and like science. So what what other themes are in your book, Faith? My book is about mortality, of course, love, friendships, um, connections. Yeah, that's mostly like what it's really about. Oh, also just like time. Oh yeah, that is a general theme because even all the chapters are broken up into like time because it starts from like 1222 to like, like the end of the day type of thing. So yeah, I would say that reading the book, um, kind of going into it knowing that they both die at the end, I thought that it, like, I would just kind of like guess what everything, everything that's going to happen. Like when this is, I'm like, okay, they're going to die from this, this, and this. But honestly, when I reached the end, I had like a, a turn in the plot. I was like, oh, I did not see that coming. I think the way the author wrote it, like, especially there, there's different like P, um, POVs from like different alternative characters that I like mentioned earlier. And I feel like while I was reading it, it did not seem important at all by any means. I was like, okay, now you're just stretching out the plot. But then when you get like towards the end, I'm like, oh, like that connects. That's why like he did that. So going into the book, knowing that like they both died at the end, I kind of had like a different perspective from the beginning towards the end. It's mainly supported by the idea that he's like a neurosurgeon who's also suffering through an illness. So you see doctors or like surgeons as people, epitomes of health, like they're very healthy because they tell their patients to be healthy or like they went through so many years of schooling, know about our bodies to like be healthy. So his, like his experience as being a surgeon and also being a terminally ill patient supports his reflections of um, his or his thoughts on mortality. So Ms. Warden, have you read a book on death? Ironically, sitting in the Zoom with you guys has made me think about my mortality. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just... <laughs> well, <laughs> for two reasons, though. And one of them is sitting in these Zooms, I just have to look at myself, you know, my staring back at me. And I just see like this skin on my neck and how loose it's becoming as I age and like all these like s- soft lines on my face. And I think, God what's happening what ha- it just happened overnight as soon as zoom started right i didn't have to contemplate it but danielle and answer your question in all seriousness have i your question was have i read books i mean i feel like i'm drawn to that it's it's very ironic to me because i'm also scared of that theme right because it's real i mean we all die right we all die and um as you get depending on, on your life, right? Um, death touches you several times or many times sometimes um, until you get to your own, until you reach that stage. So I'm always fascinated by the topic and also um, scared of it, terrified by it for multiple reasons. So it's kind of like, you know, driving by, I, I kind of, um, my analogy would be driving by a car accident. Like you don't want to look because out of respect for whoever's in the accident, you know, but then you have to look right? Because you have to see. And that's the way I approach that in my reading. I mean, I don't really want to read about it, especially realistically, but then I have to, because I have to know and I have to feel and all that. And that's, that's really interesting. I was going to say, what are your opinions about like plot holes in books? It's frustrating when you are vested in your read and you're vested in your characters and a writer leaves something out that you feel like needs to be answered or a character really flat and undeveloped and you were really interested in them. So I find it frustrating, but I feel like if 
if most of your audience believes that there are plot holes that they have problems with, then there's something wrong with a book, right? There's something wrong with the writing if most of them feel like that. Although sometimes it has to be that way, not plot holes, but when something is left unanswered, that can be frustrating. Like, you know, you, we want things to be like when we get to the end and we have read and been vested in the character and the read and the plot line and all that, and we want it to be nice and tidy, right? We want it to be finished so that we can move on. And sometimes a really good book doesn't do that. A really good book leaves you there and leaves you to think about it. And that can be frustrating, but it also can be wonderful because it's kind of like you fill in the blank. And that's the way I felt about um, The Handmaid's Tale. So The Handmaid's Tale for me, because of the way it ends, right? You've got this, I wouldn't call it a plot hole, but you've got this unanswered plot arc, right? We don't know where a Fred is at the end. We don't know how her story ends. And so for me, because I love the read and I was so into the character of a Fred, I needed to know what happened to her. And so that was so frustrating for me in my original read. And so however many years later, how many years has it been that um, she comes out with a sequel, The Testaments, right? I want answers to that. But the way that she answered that arc for a Fred wasn't satisfactory to me because I wanted more. And so then because of that, I really, I really did not like the Testaments, but I feel like now that I've kind of reasoned it in my head, I've kind of thought it through. I understand that I didn't give it a fair chance. And so I feel like I need to read it again for its value on its own, not for what I wanted it to do with a Fred's character. You see, I think that that's like an interesting point because oftentimes when you're looking at like book reviews, sometimes people talk about how like kind of like changing the book for like what it is. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they don't take the book of what it's like face value. Like in that book, you're not supposed to know how it ends, but we kind of like want to change it. But honestly, in my book, I was very frustrated. Like I talked to you about like death cast and it tells you like you're going to die in that day. But the book never talked about how do they know like wh when everyone is going to die. And I think that that was just one plot hole that was just so frustrating to me because I'm just like, how in the world do you know when everyone is going to die? And they had various chances to answer it, but it's just, we just don't know. They just know that you're going to die. So mm -hmm. I definitely agree with what you're saying um, with plot holes, but I, I think that for my book, that plot hole is just very frustrating for me. How about you, Daniel? Well, there are plot holes for mine because he told his story from childhood to death. So I didn't really question anything. Our last question is based off our ads uh, for the book, like the persuasive element. So we'll be reading our ads and we're going to ask you, like, do you think our book deserves the hype? Because both of our books are like super well-loved by the general public. All right, so this podcast episode was brought to you by Random Village Publishing Company, who published When Breath Becomes Air. I really enjoyed this memoir because it gave me a new perspective of how I view health and how I view uh, how someone can be on the brink of death but feel very alive. And it's about relationships, and it's about someone who can predict the outcome of his disease but still decides to be optimistic. And the side effects of reading this novel are mild to severe crying, deep intellectual thought and introspection, and possibly hypochondria. And uh, guys, this is an ad. Um, it's a parody, so our episode is not sponsored. Yes. Um, 
This podcast episode is brought to you by HarperCollins, who published They Both Die at the End. Hello? I regret to inform you that sometime in the next 24 hours, you'll be meeting an untimely death. And while there isn't anything we can do to suspend that, you still have a chance to live. So what would you do? If you only had 24 hours to live. As quoted in the book, Steve Jobs says, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, death is a destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that, as it should be. Because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is, a, it is life's change agent. It cleans out the old to make way for the new. We strongly recommend they both die at the end because, spoiler alert, we all die at the end. We won't get our stories spoiled about how we die, but because of that, we have to choose how we're going to live. Side effects of this book includes major tears. Just want to again emphasize we are nowhere near popping to be sponsored. This is just a persuasive element for our project. So, Ms. Duarte, after hearing our advertisements, do you think our book deserves the hype? So, let me just answer it in two ways. Does your book deserve the hype? For me personally, I would never read that book, right? I'm just being honest. I'm not drawn to young adult literature or young adult theme literature. And I think the premise has been like Final Destination kind of style, but a softer touch to it. So like that would not be a book that I put pick off the shelf for myself to read, right? It doesn't call to me. But do I think it appeals to many young adults? Yeah, I think I think definitely. And I can see why it's popular. So I appreciate it for that. Yes. But I can't help when when you bring me to literature and language, I cannot help but be judgy. I cannot separate myself from that. And I know that's a fault of mine. I'm I'm a book snob. I'm I'm you know, if a book has a lot, if it's if it sells romance, I'm going to walk away from it. Right. Because that's not something that draws me to it. And I think it's cheesy. And I miss a lot of great reads because of that. So I know that about myself, but that's my honest opinion, Faith. Danielle, what do you think about Danielle? Does her deserve the hype? Same answer. (laughs) Would I read your book? No, never. I would never pick up that book to read, not even if it was the only thing in the waiting room at the doctor's office and I had to wait for three hours, had nothing to do. I would not read it. But do I think that it probably is a beautiful book and a brave book by someone who did something very courageous knowing that he was about to die and wanted to lead behind this message. I think it's beautiful and I think it will appeal to many people because of that. Thank you to our audience for tuning in to this episode. We would also like to thank our literature teacher, Ms. Duarte, for giving us such a fun project to end our senior year. And we would also like to thank her for guesting on this episode. I really hope our listeners enjoy our reviews for our respective books. If you guys have any book recommendations or would like to discuss these books with us, feel free to reach out to us. (laughs) 